It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and welcome to another conversation with John McKnight and Peter Block. I'm Maggie Rogers, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. John and Peter are the authors of The Abundant Community. Their work joins the movement to support neighborhoods in discovering their capacity to create a strong local economy, raise their children, sustain their health, and care for each other. Each guest is a social pioneer who is inventing an alternative future based on the gifts and capacities of citizens. We're pleased today to be joined by Deborah Putney. Deborah has been a colleague of John and John McKnight and Jody Kretzman at the Asset-Based Community Development Institute for 25 years. Her work uses the ABCD approach to addressing neighborhood health issues. Much of Deborah's work focuses on how engaged citizens can become effective co-producers of their own health and well-being. And we'll be talking today about what she has learned regarding community action that improves health. So after they've talked for a while, we'll open up the call. There are two ways to join. If you dialed in, press star eight on your phone to be put into a queue. If you're following along on the web, simply post your comments in the chat window. We're very interested in your thoughts and reflections. Leslie Stephen, our website manager, is supporting us in that chat room. Um, so I. Uh, John McKnight is traveling and will be calling in um, as soon as he's able. So right now I'll turn things over to Peter to begin the conversation. Thanks, Maggie, and welcome, Deborah. Uh, and thank you for everybody listening or uh, on the chat. Uh, so, Deborah, how about if we begin by giving maybe a little idea of what you're up to now, what you're doing, uh, your Rochester work, and a little background. And uh, then we'll take it from there. Thank you, Peter. I'd be very pleased to talk about the work. Uh, My work for the last eight years has been with the Greater Rochester Health Foundation and a really stellar group of its grantees in what's called the Neighborhood Health Status Improvement Initiative. Uh, This initiative was launched in 2008 with a unique approach that uh, is really different even for a foundation focused on health improvement. The funding programs oriented to the social determinants of health. Uh, In other words, grantees are not meant to deliver programs or services. They're funded to organize their communities around the health improvements they want to see internally. So the social determinants of health, there there are several. For those of you who aren't familiar with this framework, uh, certainly, genetics is a social is a, is a determinant of health, but we don't focus on that because we can't do anything about it. Um, uh, likewise, uh, medical care and access to care is something uh, that happens outside of ourselves. But within the community, people can look at the physical, social, and economic environments in that community and themselves do something about those things. So the goal is to create a context for health that supports people making good decisions. 
the, um, the, the uh, health improvement initiative is based on a partnership model, meaning that the foundation is partnering with its grantees and working with them, as opposed to just giving them money. Uh, it's also based on a learning model, meaning that the foundation is really interested in what's working and why, in addition to the changes that are produced in the neighborhoods. So the four groups uh, are at different uh, points along the way in the process, meaning some has some started uh, eight years ago and some have started more recently. But the foundation is supporting them uh, in what we consider the long term. Uh, Ten years is the expected support for each group. They are, uh, their progress is reviewed every three years. But um, the foundation has really acknowledged that you don't change structural conditions in a, a year or two. Uh, its, uh, its funding also supports what we call evaluation coaches and technical support in asset-based community development. That would be me. Uh, and I wanted to say a little bit uh, about the, the uh, two of these communities, just to give you an idea of the uh, array of things that they're doing and the kinds of uh, progress they're making. Um, Later on, I'd, I'd love to tell you more about the evaluation and how that works. But uh, two examples. So one of these is an inner city community. And this community did start eight years ago. Uh, the people who are involved are uh, neighborhood residents, individuals, families. Uh, they've come together in block clubs. They have a neighborhood council. But these are informal groups. These are None of these are 501c3s except for the the organization that actually received the grant, which is the CDC. Uh, this community started out, I can tell you a short story about them, on, uh, early on in their work when they were conducting an asset map in the first year. They, uh, they finished their asset map and then they met as a community and they had identified several issues that they wanted to work on, healthy eating, healthy exercise, and doing something about the open air drug market that had plagued their community for about 30 years. And it was really interesting at this meeting because uh, the, the room was set up with, uh, to, to provide for three discussion groups and people were invited to sit down at any table and on, on, you know, talk about one of those issues. Everybody in the room went to the table uh, that had to do with getting rid of the drug market. So they mm -hmm. knew what their health issue was. People had voted with their feet. They'd made it really clear. And they actually said that evening that none of the other improvements they might make uh, would have any impact if that drug market uh, was still there. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't do all sorts of things in other areas, but really a big emphasis for this group was um, doing a variety of things against the drugs. So um, the foundation, uh, in addition to giving the primary grant, also allowed for the uh, grantees to give mini grants uh, to neighborhood residents in order to design and implement small-scale health improvement ideas on their own. So in this neighborhood, uh, if you go back eight years, you would have seen uh, a, a stereotype of an inner city neighborhood, uh, uh, a neighborhood that was ugly to look at, that was strewn with trash, that had very few amenities. Uh, today, when you go through the neighborhood, people, people comment all the time, uh, this neighborhood group has managed 
to um, build community gardens. It has developed a park and playground. It has completed uh, a major trail going for all, all the way through Rochester um, and right through the neighborhood. It has uh, small education uh, opportunities. It's got uh, numerous activities for seniors, for youth. Uh, it has developed major partnerships, and by that I mean uh, with, between neighborhood residents, the, the mayor, the police, the courts, the judges, the district attorney, uh, anybody you can think of they are partnering with. There's been massive community change uh, in this area. And I want to say that this, this community is working at all three of what I consider levels of asset-based community development. So you sort of have the, the entry-level things, uh, you know, what can we do right here, right now to change our, our space. Uh, you have the middle level, which is what can we do in partnership to help uh, increase the, our momentum and increase uh, what we can do. And then you have another level, which I think of as the, the policy level. What, what kinds of policies do we need to change to make things possible in our area. They're doing all three. We also have a rural community who is much, much newer to the, to the program. But again, this is a loosely affiliated group of residents who participate across all kinds of categories of action. Um, several locally-based small groups, uh, include, including one uh, very interesting group that is focused on what they call closing the gaps in the trail system that runs across New York and through their area. Uh, they've done all the kinds of contextual improvements like uh, starting gardens and um, offering residents opportunities to do these small health improvement grants. They also have major uh, partnerships going right up to the state, and they have also already launched into all three of these levels of community engagement. So that's kind of what I've been doing for the last uh, eight years, and it's been uh, a real learning exercise for me. And using this framework of health has actually uh, really helped me in my ABCD work. Wow. Do we need about five hours, Deborah? We do. <laughs> Because, because I somebody, could talk about each of these groups for, yeah, for an just, hour. I know. Let's just pick the inner city, you know, just uh -huh. because in each group, you know, uh, you're learning things. And it's, it, it's interesting to me that the asset-based, you know, what are people's gifts, and then dealing with the issue of drugs. It's an interesting moment. Did you, are you facilitating these meetings? Do you spend a lot of time in the, with these uh, grantees? I visit New York and spend about a week of every month uh, in Rochester, gotcha. and those visits are direct face-to-face -face work with the organizing team for each grantee and then oftentimes with the residents as well. When, when you began, you know, uh, how did you find the, the right residents? I mean, uh, what's the launch process look like? Uh, you know, this well, would be the level that you're talking about. Right. The, the grants uh, were, um, uh, were given, and uh, each grantee, the first thing they did was to hire uh, 
hire a person to lead their team. Now, you could you could call that person a community organizer. You could call them a community connector. Yeah. But that was what their job was, was to they, find people and bring them out. Uh, we, we actually encouraged them to bring them out just to do something that would have a positive impact on the community. We did not start by talking about um, a reduction in the incidence of disease or uh, any kind of right. usual framing of health. So that's and that connector is that a full time job? Um, I think some of them started out uh, part time. They very quickly moved to full time, and now uh, most of the grantees have uh, at least two people that are that are working pretty much full time on doing this connecting work. That's amazing. So, uh, and you're giving them technical support, really, to the connectors and their organizing efforts in the neighborhoods or the. Yeah, and yes, and so that uh, initially my support. Um, one thing I didn't mention was that there's kind of a uh, a framework within the grants that we think of as assess, plan, and do, which is those three things are happening all the time. But the right. first of the grants, the, they were they were um, urged to conduct an asset map of their neighborhood. So that during that year, I helped them design what that would look like, not get caught up in, um, you know, using their findings as data or getting tangled in that kind of thing, but really looking for the assets and starting to connect them uh, one to another in, through relationship building. Um, as they started their planning year, uh, that was an opportunity once they had uh, some kind of critical mass of residents at the table and acting on their own, they sat down together and thought about what they would want to do together over time to uh, move towards a healthier community. And uh, they, they were uh, completely free to choose uh, almost anything they wanted in the categories of the physical, social, or economic health. So you know, each group came up with a plan and figured out how they were going to uh, implement that plan, which meant that the plans had to be, at least initially, kind of small scale. They couldn't be big right. massive plans. Um, and then the third year, they really launched kind of uh, full force into implementing their plans. But nothing really changed. Uh, it was still residents uh, doing the majority of things on the plan. Uh, how much money is involved here? Is that... Can you are, tell us are, about the scale of dollars? I think a, I can say that. Um, <laughs> yes, okay. these are, were very generous grants. So I, I am sorry that I don't actually remember what the exact amount was, but in the, the first year, uh, the asset mapping year, they uh, I think the grants were about seventy to $80,000. So there was uh, money really to support, generous money to support the organizer. Uh, and to provide for these mini grants. Uh, once the groups had developed their plans and were in the implementation phases full force, uh, the grants went up to about $160,000. So again, this is very unique in terms of the amount of funding and how, how long-term the funding is. I, uh, that shows great consciousness on the foundation. 
be willing to you know, commit a couple million dollars over a 10-year period uh, or more for that is true. And a neighborhood. Even, yes, and even with that investment, uh, it is remarkable and quite unique that they are not uh, expecting health outcomes in a year or two. They well, they, they bought... They bought the logic, didn't they? they, they yes, they absolutely, they absolutely uh, understand how uh, entrenched the issues are in terms of the social determinants of health, at least in terms of how they function in a negative way. And uh, they sort of built backwards from, uh, you know, if we're hoping for, you know, long-term improvements in the incidence of, say, stroke or diabetes in these neighborhoods, uh, we have to really think clearly about what we need yeah. to do to get there and how long that's going to take. That's, 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 that's wonderful because, I mean, the, the big insight was that uh, health is not fundamentally determined by the healthcare industry. Absolutely. That's Which absolutely deep, correct. Yeah. That's, a big, that's a big insight because health is the easiest thing to get money for, but it usually goes to hospitals and clinics. And, you know, it, it's really the expansion of, of uh, health as a, the professionals. This money goes well, to residents. Really amazing. Absolutely, and I think you know, I don't, I don't believe anyone would question the contribution the field of medicine, well, access to healthcare it has made in determining health outcomes, but. I think the how behind that is very important. And as you say, you know, the field of medicine isn't really oriented to the production of health. It's, it's, it's mostly focused on responding to health issues. So it's well, critically important. Pardon? Hopefully. I'm just agreeing with you. Now, the, uh, so I'm interested in the, in the framework you have of physical, social, and economic. Ultimately, before long, I want to talk about evaluation and economics, but how, tell me what you mean when you talk about improvements in the physical and social. Okay, sure. So when we talk about, you know, none of these are absolute categories with you know, very finely tuned definitions, but when we talk about the physical uh, improving Physical health, people can actually interpret that either as, you know, literally interpret, uh, improving their own physical health, but, but we think it fit more as the physical context for health. So literally the place, where Garden. I live, the neighborhood I navigate, you know, where yep. I am, much of my time. What does that physical environment offer me in, in terms of opportunities to be healthy? So some uh, neighborhoods clearly offer people lots of opportunities. They're safe. They're green. They have sidewalks. You know, people can get out and exercise. They they can get to a grocery store. Other neighborhoods do not have those amenities, and so the physical environment isn't supporting health very very much. So exactly. the opposite. Exactly. So we are inviting people to consider you know, what they would want to see in their environment that could support health more and support healthy choices and to do what they can do to make that happen. In terms of 
uh, the social determinants of health or the more specific category of social health. Uh, we know from much research that people who are uh, connected, who have, have good relationships, who know people, who work together with others, we know that that, that is a positive determinant of health. We also know that in some neighborhoods, people are disconnected for a variety of reasons. Um, yes. They don't have opportunities to work together. And so, again, this is a very broad category, but we're inviting people to come together and figure out how to build that social cohesion and eventually some kind of individual and collective efficacy, which right. then uh, uh, has a clear positive um, impact on health. You know, you uh, one of my uh, colleagues, friends is, is Mars Incorporated, and they've done a lot of research on social capital, mm -hmm. uh, which shows is exactly what you're talking about. That if you have high social capital in a neighborhood, it impacts everything. And you know, Putnam's work was like that originally. And their definition of social capital is two things: one is do people kind of trust each other, and do they do, do things cooperatively to make place better. Exactly. Would, would you uh, buy that as a definition of social capital, or how do you think about that? Um, I don't worry too much about being precise, but I would definitely include <laughs> those things. When I think, when I think, I mean, there's so many academics who have had come up with so many, you know, very, know. very precise definitions. Uh, but I do think that the notion of trust, I mean, if, if you cannot come out your front door and trust that the person walking past on the sidewalk is uh, somehow a good, uh, well-intentioned person, uh, and if you cannot find somebody to do something with, then yeah. you don't have any social capital. So, so those things definitely contribute. Peter, uh, this is John McDyke. I'm finally joining you. Hi, John. Hi, John. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, glad you're here. So there's two things. Uh, I mean, this is just an amazing work that you're doing, Deborah. I'm just so happy to hear about it. Uh, well, I hope after clear, 10 Peter, years, I'm not. I'm not doing it. The neighbors are doing it. No, but <laughs> what you what you're doing is you know you're helping them think about what you, what they're doing. You know, so much of the asset-based work, a lot of it was let's count up the banks and institutions and agencies. You know, and right. a lot of the uh, United Way social, the social. Let's get the agencies to to get. And you're not talking about better agency services, better medical. So you're saying, what can residents do to gain control of their own physical, social, and economic lives? That's and that, that's just thrilling the way you put that. Yeah. So let me ask you before yep. we get to evaluation, uh, what, in, what what's the level of economic impact? What have you seen happening growing out of the physical and social work, which are kind of uh, blunt in terms of what economic difference do they make in terms of giving people more economic control of their lives? Uh, that's a really good question, and I, uh, I talk to the grantees about this all the time. The economic um, issues are, are probably the most difficult ones to work on, uh, although they've certainly succeeded in some ways. Uh, for example, this inner city group has um, leveraged all kinds of money to um, facilitate what they're trying to do. 
So there have been major investments in the neighborhood. I could not say at this point that, uh, I don't think they would say they had been successful in terms of, for example, any major employment initiatives or you know, increases in individual earnings. But in terms of investments in the neighborhood, they've been hugely successful to the two. Do they focus at all on helping people expand their small businesses? Because in an inner city or rural, people don't realize how productive the residents are. You know, we've got yeah. such a negative story about people that don't have high income. But uh, has there any? That's well, that true. And people are, all these groups are aware of that. Um, but actually, and there is a bit of a difference between the rural groups and um, this group in the inner city. Uh, they are actually focusing less on that right now. They've, they've reached out and have attempted to develop some partnerships that will support residents as they try to move toward their own personal economic security. Uh, yeah. But I would have to say they've done more at, in terms of investments at the community level. Gotcha. So let me uh, thank you. That's, that's, uh, that's a whole subject in itself. Is to is to, you know, uh, Peter. Yes, John. John, Deborah. Uh, I wanted to go back. Can you uh, stop me if you've gone through this already? But if uh, if you think that social capital produces a series of outcomes that normally are defined by programs, outcomes that have you know to do with health knowledge, housing, economic support, etc., cetera, uh, then how do you deal with funders who, uh, who always want to come into the community in a silo, in a, within a category, when uh, so much of the research shows that if you increase the social capital, you'll probably get more positive outcomes in their program areas than if you came in with a program? Uh, great question. Uh, we haven't really talked about the funding question yet, other than uh, my uh, serious applause for the Greater Rochester Health Foundation and their uh, innovative thinking. Um, in, in terms, I mean, the fact is that the, the, the neighborhoods that I'm talking about right now do have the uh, enormous benefit of having funding from a funder that gets it and that is actually willing to fund resident action. Um, I haven't found that many other uh, foundations, certainly not government funders that I'm aware of, that are uh, doing any kind of support for real grassroots, place-based, resident-driven work. Uh, there are a lot of foundations who use the buzzwords, you know, community, uh, local, but, but they don't really, really indicate through their requirements that they trust people to actually make uh, a difference in this regard. So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there are uh, long lists of funders doing these things. Now, there are certainly funders doing good work, and there are certainly funders doing things in terms of the social determinants of health. Uh, I, I, for me, the missing piece in what they're doing is that they're still fairly prescriptive and they are not necessary and they usually start at the partnership level as opposed to the resident level. 
That's a beautiful way of putting that. It's scripture start with the agencies and the institutions rather than right and they and they encourage partnership but generally it's a top-down kind of thing where you know the people who are the experts the professionals are in the position of trying to get residents to partner with them as opposed to what we're trying to do which is to have the residents inviting agencies and institutions to partner with them Exactly. So let me uh, ask about the evaluation question, and then we'll open it up. For, we're getting some questions on the chat, but tell me a little bit about what you call the evaluation. You had a second word next to it that I missed, and how are you thinking about measuring what difference this is making? Uh, well, first of all, so we have, uh, as I said, the foundation has, uh, as part of this initiative, has provided evaluation coaches. Uh, this is a community-based coach. coach, coach, yeah. Oh. Uh, so they're not evaluators, they are evaluation coaches, meaning that they are working directly with the grantee groups to define what they are trying to achieve, to uh, define what they consider success, and then to define the measures that they will use to to evaluate whether they're achieving what they want to achieve. So it's not a top-down evaluation. It's a community-based participatory evaluation. Um, where, is the, with, sorry? where is the coach from? Is it a, a, someone with a history of this kind of citizen-based evaluation? Uh, these are, are two local individuals in Rochester, so they know the community. They've done all sorts of different kinds of community work. One has worked for a long time with NeighborWorks. So, yes, they have, they have yeah. experience with grassroots kinds of efforts. So what, what kind of measures are they coming up with? I, you know, I, I understand it. It's interesting that the evaluators are there to make a difference, not to be yeah. distant and watch yeah. someone else which is what 90% of the evaluation money goes for, is an outsider looking in. And right. they, they're in. Uh, where are they now towards the question of measures? Do you have any sense of what kind of measures they're leading, heading towards? Oh, absolutely. You? Let me just tell you a little bit about uh, what we call our evaluation framework. And this yeah. is something that your listeners can uh, download from the website. Uh, if they want more information, they can go to the uh, Greater Rochester Health Foundation's website at www.thegrhf.org. Uh, and they can click through um, what we fund to the Neighborhood Health Status Improvement Initiative, and they'll find more information on the program, and they can uh, take a look at this evaluation framework. So Thank what you. we decided uh, was that if the ultimate objective is, you know, 15, 20 years out, we would love to see fewer health disparities uh, between this neighborhood and other parts of the city and the state, uh, and reductions in problematic conditions, diseases like diabetes, stroke, asthma. So that's sort of the, uh, the distant uh, goal, is to improve that. But since we're using the ABCD approach, and since we recognize that those things are not going to happen for a very long time, uh, we have kind of built backwards to the kinds of things we do think we can measure along the way. So our model has uh, four steps 
before we get to change in health status. We start out with what we call a change in the environment, exposures, and experiences. So that's really the context. So because people start out by just doing what they can do in their neighborhood, we're looking to see how that neighborhood environment changes in, at the beginning. So that might be, uh, if, we're, if we're talking about uh, socially, we're looking at social cohesion, we're looking at engagement, collective efficacy, are people coming out and doing things? We're looking at the physical environment. Is it cleaner? Does it seem to be safer? Uh, are living conditions improving? Uh, economic, as I said, is very difficult. Uh, we originally defined that as opportunities for self-sufficiency, and we have not made a huge amount of progress on that. Uh, and, and then there's, we also add cultural uh, uh, factors to this environmental question. So we're looking at prevailing community norms. So that's the area. Things we're looking at in terms of indicators, uh, we started out with baseline indicators that, that uh, look at the number of blocks, for example, in a neighborhood that show that have uh, trash or show no trash, and we're looking over time, like does the, does the um, evidence of trash and litter uh, decrease over time uh, based on what the residents are trying to do? Um, we look at whether or not, uh, say, uh, any particular block is more visually appealing. So that could, you know, the improvement right. could result from planting flowers, from painting, or any number of other things. So really, number, number one is this change in the environment. Number gotcha. two, we would say once you've done some changes in the space, you can progress to a change in people's attitudes, feelings, and understanding about uh, their world and their future. So this is you know, moving a couple of years beyond, and we're talking three, six, eight, eight years out. We hope people in the neighborhood feel differently. So that might be in terms of their hope for the future, uh, whether they feel uh, a sense of cohesiveness and connect, uh, connect, connectedness, whether they feel safe, empowered, capable, in control. Um, and so we have measures that are attached to those things, and we're measuring changes uh, over time. From that, the flow moves into, uh, again, you know, year, moving out in the years. Uh, we, we then go to changes in, in personal behavior. So, we think, contrary to many uh, health interventions, that you don't start by telling somebody to stop smoking or to eat better, that, that changes in behavior um, quite possibly come after these other things happen. So the changes in behavior include all sorts of things, getting more uh, healthy physical activity, uh, eating better, you know, tobacco use, substance abuse, all kinds of things of that nature. And again, uh, we we are measuring, for example, with the nutrition uh, category, we are measuring, uh, one measure is the number of fruits and vegetables somebody ate on the previous day, um, or the number of cigarettes they used on the previous day. Uh, so we have baseline measures for these. Uh, we're not uh, yet seeing too many changes. We're seeing changes in the nutrition category and the physical activity category. We're not yet seeing changes in too many of the others. Um, but we're definitely seeing changes in the environment and changing in attitudes. Who, who does uh, the uh, looking? Is it residents trained to collect the data, or is it third yes, party? Yes, 
that is that is part of uh, why we call them evaluation coaches. They work with residents. Every community does uh, a community survey, usually every two to three years. Uh, but it is residents going out door to door and talking to their neighbors. So residents are trained. Uh, residents actually participate in developing developing those instruments, and then they are trained to go out um, and gather the data. It's really good. Yeah, that's 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 a huge innovation. Is to say that neighbors can ask neighbors and collect the data. You don't need a third party independent professional. But the coaches yeah. give them the methodology. That's terrific. So yeah. we're we're into uh, about thirty five minutes into it. This is wonderful, Deborah. John, so I want to say one more thing. Can I okay, just tell sorry. you the final category, and then I'll I'll, I'll stop. Uh, the last area that that we flow into once you've gone through those first three is we call it change in the medical conditions that precede disease. So if people's behavior changes and if all these other things have changed, we hope to see you know reduced blood pressure, reduced cholesterol, all of the all of these preconditions. So eventually, we hope we will be measuring those. So with that, I will I will stop. No, it's good. So there's four categories: environment, exposure, capture, people work. John, do you want to ask anything before we open it up for questions? I wanted to ask uh, one thing about uh, local perceptions uh, of health. One of the things that I remember years ago was in a neighborhood gathering uh, a group of people and asking them, oh, what were the things that they thought made people in the neighborhood healthy? And I remember at the end of the evening, there was quite a discussion, but nobody ever mentioned access to doctors or hospitals. And so it made me realize that there is sort of a, a, a local perception of health that often reaches beyond the uh, medical definition. And I'm wondering, as you began or as you continue, when you talk with people about health, what kinds of determinants or factors do you hear them most often raising as critical to health? That's a great question, John, uh, and I think you might have missed a little of that answer. But okay, well, if you've already answered it. No, no, no. That's, uh, generally, I think, well, one of the examples I gave was the inner city community who uniformly mentioned getting rid of an open-air drug market as the primary uh, determinant of whether they were going to be healthy or not. So, I mean, that one was very specific and unique. But they do mention things like um, uh, Peter was talking about trust and, um, you know, the ability to know their neighbors. They mentioned, you know, cleanliness of the streets, whether the trash got picked up, whether their house is falling down, whether, you know, they've got a leak in their roof. So they're, they, they, though they don't, typically use the language of social determinants of health. Uh, when they talk about it, they're absolutely mentioning things that fall into that. Yeah, good, good. All right, please go ahead. So why don't we uh, stop for a second, and Maggie, why don't you invite questions on the chat or people to call in, okay? Sure. Um, if you've dialed in, uh, you can press star 8 on your telephone and you'll be put in a queue to, uh, to join the conversation, and I'll see that. Uh, also, there are some questions in the chat. I think, Peter, you mentioned you, you can see those, so I don't know if you want to take any of those now. 
Well, I've been I've been working on it. Uh, the questions about measurement evaluation. One question yeah. was IRB certification, which is kind of technical. Uh, but I assume your coaches know all about that, and so when they okay. have people, they they go through that process. And maybe you could explain what that is if you know what it is. Yes, the IRB is the uh, internal review board, and it it often, I mean, in my world, it it is associated with universities, uh, yeah. and any anybody uh, doing research at a university has to uh, either go through an internal review uh, in terms of uh, having their research methodologies uh, reviewed um, and approved, or actually get an exemption, which generally means that you're not doing anything that could uh, potentially uh, uh, violate anybody's rights. Uh, and that's putting it very, very, very simply. Um, our evaluators were absolutely uh, aware of that. And although we are not, um, uh, though I was funded through Northwestern University, they were not, uh, they were looking at, at their local university to assist them. Yeah. considering that and uh, did what was necessary. That's great. It's really a way of, of making sure that the research is done ethically and respectfully and doesn't exploit anybody. So that's great. Does any, anybody want to ask a question directly, Maggie? Anybody in line? Uh, no, I don't have any callers yet. Cool. So is there other things about this? I mean, uh, you started by saying they have a ten-year perspective, perspective, and then you went to fifteen and twenty. Uh, uh, yes, interesting, isn't it? Um, I, uh -huh. And I would I would distinguish that by saying that the that their board has made a a, a dollar commitment for ten years, um, though they do simultaneously recognize that uh, those ultimate health outcomes will probably not be achieved. You know. We don't. Eat, I mean, we don't know. We are actually uh, sort of testing our logic model as we progress through it. Right. Uh, one thing we've learned is that our initial estimates of how long um, each of these categories I gave you might take, that they were low. So, for example, we initially assigned a year or two for changes in the environment, kind of three to six years out, changes in attitudes. And we already know that, that it's going to take longer than that. One thing uh, that applies uh, much more to urban communities than it does to rural communities, um, this particular community that we're working with in, in the city of Rochester has uh, a transient rate of about 60% or more, meaning that from year to year, 60% uh, of the people are different. So in one way, our measurements, you know, we're not measuring the same people. This is in no way a true experiment. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so we're battling, you know, we move ahead, but it's new people coming on board all the time. Um, is, that so itself, that, is that a goal in itself to try to stabilize the population of the neighborhood? Now you are moving into a different sort of an economic question. So I, I would have to say that one of the, uh, one of the most important issues, uh, if you're looking broadly at economic development, uh, one of the mo most important issues is gentrification. So we have no desire whatsoever. I mean, if you, if you look at the pathway to developing 
a neighborhood or a community, you, uh, you know, de depending on how you're measuring success, uh, what can end up happening is that neighborhood becomes desirable and new people move in and the values increase. And uh, there's a big question about where does the value of that begin and end. We exactly. don't want everybody to have to leave the neighborhood, uh, but yet we would like it to improve enough so that there are, uh, it's a reasonable place to live and there are reasonable amenities for the people living there. Um, but it's very hard to control all that. So well, yeah, because it has to do with affordable housing and, uh, you know, there's a book out that's very popular about eviction. And, and, and once you... Yeah. Well, once you make a neighborhood uh, desirable enough for somebody to invest <laughs> in it, that can get out of control. Exactly. So, yeah. It's a huge displacement. So that's the challenge is to make it attractive for the residents who choose to stay and have the economic means to stay. And right. uh, that's, that's, just, that's great. And you're going to interrupt, Maggie, if anybody wants to ask a question, right? Yes, yes, I will. People are being pretty sh Oh, we have one. Hold on just a second. Okay, we have somebody from Texas. Hello? Yes, hey, my name is, name is Tony, and, and I'm wondering if, uh, if we could hear a little bit from Deborah about what she may be learning that's different about the rural community than uh, the inner city community. Thank you. Tony, that is a great question, and actually that is one of the big lessons, is that these communities are very different. So I would say that my first big lesson about the difference between working with urban and rural communities is that uh, I see that in an urban community uh, there are uh, more issues of trust uh, and, and problems with people feeling safe coming out and doing things. So in other words, the challenge in uh, an inner city community may be uh, to actually get people to come out and try to do something. Once you get them going, they're, they're fine, but just literally that first step of feeling comfortable enough to come out and do something is, can be an issue. Uh, in rural communities, um, you have almost, the opposite. You have a real tradition, and John, you'll laugh, but I think this is kind of a la Alexis de Tocqueville. You know, you have people who are absolutely accustomed to doing things together to make their community a better place, whether it has to do with farming or, or whatever. People are used to uh, doing things for themselves and working together to get that done. However, I find in rural communities, a bigger challenge is to... Uh, sort of blur the boundaries between the people who can do and the people who can't. So oddly enough, I think there's uh, much more cliquish behavior in rural communities. Uh, sometimes that is based around longstanding associations, whether it's a church or a grange or you know, groups that have been together for a long time, and they see themselves as actors and other people perhaps not so much. So two different kinds of sets of challenges. Does that does that help at all, Tony? Yes. Yep. Thank you, Deborah. Also, one more thing about the rural communities um, that um, becomes apparent very quickly when you start trying to organize is the distances. So our inner city neighborhood, you know, can be measured in blocks. 
whereas our rural communities that we're working with are measured in miles. And you, so you have certainly people that live in villages, uh, you know, they, they function a bit more like the urban communities. They're close by, they know people more. And then you have people who are living uh, out on a rural road and they may be half a mile from their nearest neighbor. And so that becomes a little bit harder. Knocking on doors is a little bit harder. <laughs> Jogging people into joining a group is a little bit harder. Let's have somebody. Are you there, Deborah? Still? Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. There's just a little static. That's okay. Let me. Uh, are you finished on that? Sorry. Oh, can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you now. So let me give you some questions from the chat. Uh, okay. One is, uh, how are residents involved in deciding how... Let me give you a series of questions. You can pick the one you want to speak to. How's that? How are residents involved in deciding how investments were made? Uh, did your coaches serve as liaison to developers? I'm not quite sure where developers are in the conversation. Uh, and how do you... As you're measuring, how do outcomes and deliverables are communicated to members and residents? Uh, so I, will, I will start with the last one, if I may, uh, sure. because, the, uh, because the evaluation is, this, uh, is a community-based model. The evaluation coaches do whatever number crunching uh, is going to be done, and they immediately take that back to the grantees, each one individually, uh, they present uh, the whatever they have found uh, in a variety of ways, and that is not just to the team, but also to residents if they're interested. Uh, and then they converse with them about what those things mean, how they might want to use those findings in uh, things that they're doing. So, for example, uh, grantees have said, we're really interested in that finding, and we'd like to present that, you know, in a video we're making or in a report we're doing, and the evaluation coaches help them with that. So the, uh, so the grantees and the residents have every access to the data. They can call on the evaluation coaches to help them use it in any way they want to. So the, coach, um, the coaches uh, organize and present the data, not the residents who collected the data. Well, but, the, but ultimately the uh, coaches will help residents uh, also think of ways to present the data and gotcha. take it out and do it on their own. So they're acting, the coaches, the evaluation coaches are acting as resources at every step of the way. And then I think the first question was how are residents involved in uh, deciding about the investments? Now I'm not quite sure what that means. I mean part of the, part of the grants do go to support uh, uh, salaries for the community organizers or connectors. Uh, but the monies that are available um, for the uh, mini-grants, we call them resident health promotion projects, um, those are smaller amounts. And uh, different groups have set up different ways of doing that. Sometimes residents are involved in reviewing and choosing what gets funded. Um, they are always able to uh, contribute thoughts to that. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the grants have uh, made those 
small grants larger amounts. Some really are working with very small amounts. Um, What's a large any, small amount? Uh, I think the largest one would probably have been a couple of thousand dollars. Okay. But often they're several hundred dollars. Can you give, just give an example of one of these grants just so we get a sense of... Sure, absolutely. So um, uh, just uh, recently in one of the rural communities, there was a community celebration. People uh, wanted to res resurrect uh, sort of... Uh, events that happened in their community from many years ago, and so uh, I'm trying to, I can't remember the exact amount, but uh, say roughly $500 was put yeah. towards putting together uh, a festival day for the community that everybody could participate in and um, sort of try to get the, get the feeling of history uh, in their neighborhood. That's, that's, that's helpful. Uh, and there's there's been many of them that have gone to developing community gardens, whether it's vegetable gardens or flower gardens or things like that. It's interesting to me to what you call the uh, grants. You had a long name that had the word health in it, didn't you? Uh -huh. That was designed explicitly <laughs> to, re to keep reminding people that what they're doing is related to health, that I love you know, it. Having having a party, having a festival, growing a garden, whatever it is, that is related to health. And they are actually, when they apply for the funds, they are um, they have to say how they think that doing what they want to do will uh, contribute to the health of their community. That's that's part of the education and kind of the uh, exactly. narrative transformation. That's beautiful. So we're getting near the end. Uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and then, John, you may have a comment or a question, is how complicated this is. It's so much easier to put up money and run a program and have people to come and, and, and graduate from a program, where this is so much more complicated and nuanced and subtle and patient. And uh, I just, uh, that just strikes me why, the, why this is so uh, radical in the best way. It's just amazing. Amazing story. My, my final question, which you don't have to answer, is when are you finishing the book on this? Or, or do we have to wait 10 years? <laughs> uh, that's uh, uh, under in, in conversation right now. Um, but, but I will tell you that the program officer, Barb Zappia, and I have written a number of papers uh, that have been presented at academic conferences. Um, and those can be downloaded both from uh, my personal website, I think I have them on there, and from the ABCD Institute website. Do you mind uh, listing your website in case people want to contact you or ask questions? Oh, sure. My my website is www.d, as in Deborah Putney, P-U-N-T-E-N-N-E-Y.com. Uh, Thank you. So that's great. I, uh, so, John, any thoughts or questions? Oh, I think it's been a wonderful exposition of uh, of health determinants thought of outside the medical domain and uh, how the community is is the primary site for increasing well-being, uh, including health. Deborah's done a spectacular job. Really appreciate your your doing this. 
webinar with us, Deborah, and uh, I know I speak for everybody in saying thank you. You're very welcome. Any thoughts, Deborah, about about this conversation or things, last thoughts you'd like to leave us with? Um, Well, again, I want to compliment the Greater Rochester Health Foundation for its um, innovative thinking in both designing and supporting this work. Uh, And if there are any other foundations on board, I want to encourage you to try something similar. Exactly. All right, thank you so much, Deborah. Maggie, why don't we... uh, Bring it to a close. Sure. Uh, this this was really wonderful. Thank you so much, Deborah. Uh, thank you for taking the time out today to be with us, uh, and to our listeners and those who were active in the chat, and to to Tony for giving us a call. Um, and the website it has been put on the chat. Um, I'll repeat it. Uh, Deborah's website. It's www.dpunt. E-N-N-E-Y dot com. Uh, And a recording of this call will be on our website later on today or tomorrow. Our next conversation will be on Tuesday, July 25. We'll be joined by Cormac Russell. Uh, Cormac has also worked with John for a number of years and has worked around uh, in over 30 countries around the world, training in ABCD and other strength-based approaches. So that'll be an interesting conversation. So until then, please visit our website, www.abundantcommunity.com, and stay in in touch with us on the web and on Facebook. So thank you again, everyone, for being with us, and uh, we'll bring our program to a close. And see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.